Hey guys, this is Andrew. Excited to have you on today with my friend Sam Tukra. Sam leads an AI research team at Shell, the multinational energy company I'm sure you all know very well. Much of Shell's interest in computer vision centers around inspection. A pipeline going down even 1% of the time means tens of millions of dollars in losses and serious health and safety concerns. Even just one refinery can be thousands of acres in size, so the scale over which this inspection happens is enormous. In this show, we cover Sam's bleeding edge work on reducing the dependency of expensive data labeling through the use of self-supervised models, the challenges associated with deploying models with very high reliability requirements in remote locations, and many other really interesting topics. As always, the key takeaways from my interviews are on ctlresearch.com, but if you're here to listen to the full audio, I hope you enjoy it. Sam, great to have you on the show. Would love to just start with a little bit on your background for the audience. I think that'd be an awesome starting point. Solid, yeah. So my background is mostly to do with 3D computer vision. So I primarily did my PhD in 3D computer vision, where most of my work was converting normal recurring 2D images into 3D model, which is an artificial intelligence problem. From there on, I sort of did all things AI. So in in, in the interim, whilst doing my PhD, I also did a startup um, called Third Eye, which was in the digital health space. And uh, then I joined Shell as a contractor and then became a senior machine learning uh, researcher there. And now I am uh, currently uh, running a small team of about six, building on new ideas to transform Shell's operations, more bringing them to the AI 2.0 phase, essentially. Yes, awesome. I think it's important framing to talk about what Shell is, like how, how it works as a business. Do you mind giving a bit of framing for the audience on how you'd framework out the concerns or the functions in the business? Good question. Like other energy conglomerates, it's a very old institution that is always <laughs> yeah. pushing itself to try and be anew. But if I was to frame it, and this goes for other energy institutions as well, which is the fact that business is broken down into three streams called upstream, midstream, and downstream. So upstream refers to area where all of the work is involved in exploration and production of new energy sources, albeit yeah. green or old school hydrocarbons, uh, whatever. Uh, falls in that. Upstream is all about exploring avenues to find that energy source. Midstream is more about transportation or transmission of energy from point A to point B. You as a user or a company, you want electricity flowing through your wires or gas flowing through your pipes. That's their job essentially in midstream. And downstream is more about conversion of such energy into other types of finished products. So, for example, if there are certain types of plastics that you use or different density of oil, for example, the ones that are used in car are different to the ones that are used in pipelines and refineries or even lubricants. All of this is more in downstream, which is the conversion of finished products. And the the way I would say Shell is uh, position is it's basically diversifying all those areas into as many avenues as possible to make it as efficient. Because uh, at the end of the day, the goal is still to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050, uh, which is a very, yeah. very tough goal to achieve. So all hands are on deck to make all of these processes as efficient as possible so that we do uh, achieve that goal, essentially. And this is where digital, digital transformation really comes in, because it's all about upgrading the current processes to this new age of efficiency. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Uh, within that massive amount of efforts on a very long-term timeline, if you were to bring that back to us closer to present day, 
what is most of the machine learning team or, or the teams at Shell that are working on this focused on? Like, where is where does the business view the most near-term opportunity to create value in any one of these three categories, upstream, midstream, downstream, or however you frame it for us? Good question. Uh, I can only comment to what I have been working on and uh, specifically the areas that I've been involved in. Uh, within mine, it would be uh, more in the area of visual inspection or digital twin creation and mostly in the application of computer vision. Got it. And when you look at that problem of visual inspection, I imagine there's applications of that across each area of the business, upstream, midstream, downstream. Is there a particular piece of it that you're focused on or like wh where is the inspection least well solved? What you will realize even in publicly stated press and stats is that the biggest killer is essentially corrosion in any form of refinery, whether that's within or external to an application or machines. It's the fact that yeah. these things degrade over time because of the fluids and the other types of inputs and outputs they're pumping through, which causes sure. these things to rot over time and degrade. What I work on is basically trying to detect and predict this from happening before it actually happens. Because yeah. the amount of money lost in downtime by not being able to predict these issues is insanely huge. And more importantly, one of the other issues is health and safety, right? Because if something like a valve, let's say, has corrosion and we don't know inside and we didn't detect it or even outside, yeah. because these pipes and these refineries are huge. We're talking thousands of acres, right? Um, so if these aren't detected yeah. and not known of, one little failure or like, you know how they show it in movies where like a nut goes and then there's like gas coming out and then slowly <laughs> everything breaks over time or in cartoons, it can actually yeah. lead to that if not done. Now, okay, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but it can lead to that from a health and safety perspective as well. So how does Shell organize its machine learning team relative to the, relative to the physical infrastructure? Like how does it work internally? So each region has its own. For example, each region will have its own factories that it has to cater for. And there are different regulations okay. applied based on different regions. And different types of factories mm -hmm. also require different types of solutions. There are certain locations that are predominantly for other types of work. For example, yeah. the New York office may be sales and more businessy, but the Texas office is going to be more like the HQ for science and R&D. And you mentioned regulation. Obviously, I appreciate that for business reasons and just good human reasons, you don't want things to be breaking and you want to be inspecting on a certain cadence. But how much is the regulation a driver of the way in which you inspect, the frequency? How much do you see there? It, it's quite heavily guided because each type of, let's say even a valve in a pipeline, will have its own instructions on how it's inspected. Depending upon mm. the location and how you've designed it, will also change the actual inspection methodology. So they focus very heavily on making sure that everything is tip top to the point when it comes to regulatory standards. Because yeah. if not, it's so easy for a regulatory body to just come down one day and say, well, you got to put a halt to all of this until this is all correct. Right. And yeah. that is a yeah. huge undertaking. Yeah. Interesting. Is there some central maintenance management where like every single bolt and nut and pipe is tracked in how it's maintained and has a plan associated with it. How does that work? 
There, there certainly is. There will be a governmental body that essentially conducts it, and they have a list of this available online. There's, let's say that the government regulations takes place every six months or 12 months, whatever. What happens is Shell would do its own inspection as well, surely, and every other company would also do its own inspection because you don't want to get to a point of brink of failure and then do your inspection. You don't wait around for the official inspection. You also do your own to keep everything up to date and correct. Got it. Okay. So with that framing, now we can jump into the, okay, you know, 50 years ago, I assume it's all done manually. And then at some point in the last 50 years, that started to flip toward computer assisted. Where did that flip point happen? Like, what's been the journey? Good question. The problem of efficiency and making it uh, better and better is something that has been going on for decades. It's the fact that our methods, our processes, and even our equipment has evolved over time, right? Before, you wouldn't think that these pipes and valves had sensor data. Now they do. Before, you wouldn't put camera at every location to monitor, but now you do. So what we've realized is that there is more information that we're collecting per capita and per day or per minute in this case, or even in seconds at the fine of pipes and sensors, that there's more information to absorb that can inform us to improve our our current methods to reach new heights. So it's Mm. not that a problem has essentially been solved. It's more so that we have just set new thresholds of what we want to achieve. Okay, makes a lot of sense. So uh, take us through a day in the life of Sam at Shell. Where are you spending your time today? I, I imagine there's some set of problems that are not as well solved or you know, sort of uh, levels you want to bring up to higher, those higher thresholds. What are those things you're thinking about actively? Um, Sam's day begins with starting listening to Metallica and hoping he can solve some code errors. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Amazing. Um, but generally, the way it begins is... Essentially, there's a clear problem defined from other stakeholders because the projects that we work on aren't necessarily just for ML's sake. Because at the end of the day, you can have a great machine learning algorithm, but if it doesn't reach the threshold that your stakeholders need, it's practically useless. For example, if I am trying to an inspection detection model, at the size of one of these refineries or factories. The threshold can sometimes even be 99.6%. Like anything less than that is, we're letting too many failures out, if that makes sense. You cannot afford that much size of failures simply due to the scale at which they're operating. At which point now the question is, okay, all of our research has to go into how do we achieve that crisp, even that extra 1% level accuracy with the data set we currently have or Uh, or the communication essentially is what is actually important in the short term versus what is important in the long term and how can we guide our development to achieving that, right? So let's say that the long-term goal is to get that perfect accurate model. So what can we put in place right now or where does our research go in order to achieve that in the long term? And what small bits can we do uh, as, as low-hanging fruits that can still provide assistance in the short term. So for example, one of those cases is like, okay, we may not be able to get 99% accuracy in detecting. Uh, by the way, I'm not saying that is what we haven't achieved. <laughs> I'm just saying in, the, in this particular hypothesis, um, let's say if we're not able to achieve 99% accuracy, can we create something that can still guide the decision-making of what to do in the, in a process of detecting a potential failure in the future so that we can avoid that alternative now. Very interesting. Okay, cool. And help me understand where we are in the journey here to actually arriving at these problems being solved. 
So it's a good question. I work from the research perspective where my job is to essentially propose new methods that can continuously evolve and solve these yeah. problems, but also oversee what may happen later. For example, in the case of 3D reconstruction, you mentioned one of the biggest issues is that the resolution at which we're operating is so high right, uh, that we're not we can't reconstruct that normal 1080p, which is what cameras capture. We have to reconstruct that much larger resolutions than that. Because if you imagine mm -hmm. a camera that is far away from a pipe and we zoom in, we still need to be able to see where the crack is, right? Like we cannot operate at normal yeah. resolution. Yeah. So Got that's it. where it becomes tough is how do we reconstruct at that size with, with, with resources that are deployable? Because if if it's not deployable, I can't have 250 cloud TPUs running to reconstruct in real time. That's not <laughs> happening. Um, yeah, right, right, right. So it's those kind of things. And I think the bleeding edge literally comes from the fact that if we look at the way uh, deep learning models have been developed till now, most of the focus has been in supervised learning, where it, let's say, for, for example, crack detection, you would have a bunch of images with cracks, and then you would have a bunch of labels where a person has segmented them or basically drawn a bounding box to detect them and the model is converging to that. Um, but you'll see that uh, that soon has limitations because the real world is continuously evolving. It's, it's messy, it's mm. changing, it's not organized, and you cannot collect all possible variations in order to uh, serve a model that can then detect even in this ever-changing world. Our model actually has to also learn to evolve with it. Um, yeah. So, so one of the one of the things that is bleeding edge of even that simple task is how do we create a method that continuously organically allows our models to evolve over time without us having to do this recollection of data, retraining from scratch and then redeploying, which is an iterative process that allows you to create a model, but that model only serves for a short term strategy. And then as soon as things are changed again, or there's a complete variation in scene, you have to redo the entire process all over again. It's not feasible to scale yeah. every single yeah. crack and every single refinery and different materials and different problems. So uh, there's so most of the research in this area predominantly focuses on either meta learning or reinforcement learning, or even a, a joint between the two, which. Uh, which serves uh, self-supervised learning. But, the, but predominantly the area of supervised learning, just self-supervised learning to give you an overview and understanding is yeah. basically you throw a bunch of uh, images in, in this case at the model, and then you ask the model to somehow learn a representation of this, right? Uh, somehow learn the features you need to learn uh, of this so that when I give you a specific task later on, you're not starting from scratch. You've understood what this data actually represents. Right. Mm. Um, it's a similar to, uh, if you think about it, the way human mind works uh, to some degree. Yeah. When if I was to give you a handwritten note of my handwriting, you would still be able to recognize it because you've understood what does each letter signify or what does what do these words actually mean. You've understood a representation of language and visually how that appears. So you don't need to see my handwritten note for you to understand what is written. But if I give you the same handwritten note, but now written in a totally different language that you have no idea how it's written before and how it's said, like for example, instead of English, I was to give you Hindi or Mandarin, you won't be able to understand what that means, right? Because you've never seen that yeah. representation before. So now uh, the idea is instead of me labeling that representation again, 
I can simply learn that representation as it is and try and probe my model to make sense of it. Right. So in this case, what we do is we give it a bunch of images of like, let's say cracks. Um, and we tell it to basically, from a generative perspective, reconstruct those cracks. Um, and by taking in the images and reconstructing the same images that were masked out or, or blurred or any type of other um, uh, augmentation that was done, it's able to understand what this image actually means. Otherwise, it won't be able to reconstruct the original. Right. Mm. And then you fine tune it for a particular task, then you can get significantly better uh, boost in performance. So this particular method is called mass autoencoders, but there are other variants we added to it to actually improve the results substantially. The other area, which I, I find very cool is, is the area of catastrophic forgetting. So for example, one of the things that you'll see when you fine tune a model from task one to task two, it forgets what it had learned in task one. It doesn't accrue knowledge, it overwrites its previous knowledge. But as humans, we don't do that. If we learn to ride a bicycle, but tomorrow we learn to ride a motorbike or a car, we don't forget what we learned when we rode a bicycle. We just accrue that knowledge on top of it, right? We don't overwrite our previously learned skills and experiences, we build on top of that. Uh, models, when you fine tune, don't do that. Uh, they overwrite. So in some of the, in one of the research areas that we do is, which also allows us to evolve our models over time. So this is where that solution comes in, which I mentioned is like, if tomorrow there's a brand new crack in a brand new different place, do we have to retrain from scratch and recollect all of that data again? We shouldn't have to, we should be able to accrue that new knowledge as and when it comes by. Mm. That's essentially what the area of catastrophic forgetting is. So we also play around with algorithms that prevent the model from forgetting its past knowledge so that it can be used in different avenues tomorrow and accrue that knowledge on top of it and then help you each can other. See, though, I, I sorry to interrupt you. I was going to say, you can see that, that I think the thread that goes through these things, which is that you're trying to effectively build a uh, one or, or maybe many very broadly trained sort of expert models that then you can bring down into specific tasks. And yeah. both of these things you're working on ultimately gets you to that point. Because if you're trying to fine tune into some specific thing, you don't want it to forget the generalized knowledge. And then similarly in the autoencoding, I imagine that that allows you to more easily generate the sort of the superset model, if you will, that, that generalized expert that's trained on all of Shell's data to generically to accomplish some set of tasks. Is that kind of the right way to think about the through line here? Yes, because if you think about it, all of the research currently in the in the machine learning world happens towards creating generalizable models. But right. the real world industry, we have specific tasks. And we as humans also do not generalize. Like we learn a general baseline knowledge, sure. But then afterwards in life, we, we specialize in certain tasks. And that's what brings yeah. us value and allows us to create things that we've created. So. Yeah. Essentially, if you think about it, what we're doing is we're taking that general understanding from a model, but then allowing it to become more narrow and specialized into its own task. So I think even in the next phase of AI, in my opinion, 2.0, what's really going to blow up is the, the efficiency of creating more narrow AI so that it uses less and less yeah. data domain so that you can have these specialized mini models that, 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 that are able to just deploy for that specific task. Yeah, 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 got it. So interesting. But I, the thing that I'm not totally clear on is what your long-term vision is for how these models effectively inherit knowledge from each other. Like, is there one core foundational like model that just knows images and then Shell takes it and does 
shell specific things and then several other models may then inherit from that one that do pipe inspection versus boiler inspection versus this versus that is that the way to think about it or or are there going to be is there not a common line of inheritance up to one common image understanding model and there's sort of sets of superset models uh but not necessarily all the way up to the top yeah i mean irrespective of shell or not shell that's actually more of a a broad computer vision question is how do we basically solve this thing of multitask learning uh, the yeah. way humans do, right? Is we're able to see something, but we're able to extract what you need is a system that is somehow able to go backwards as well as forwards. And what I mean by that is it's not just that it's learned a broad understanding of image and then it's able to funnel into some smaller pieces. What it has to also do is take the feedback from those smaller pieces so that it can update its own generalized knowledge as well. Uh, because there's no one particular optimization strategy that would tell you to learn a good feature distribution. Right, right. Yeah, it's super interesting. Um, it feels to me like you guys are looking at this and you're saying, look, we're just never going to arrive at that long-term goal if we're just trying to go solve these problems individually. And so is this approach that you're taking, like, are you really pushing the forefront of this or is this now a well-accepted idea in the industry that this is what's going to need to happen? Yeah, that's a good question. This is a very active new area of work. This isn't something that's been confirmed or something that actually has become the de facto, which is why there's like research papers produced in this area of work uh, almost every month, uh, because there's yeah. no one particular way to solve it and no one has solved it yet. The things that I mentioned about accruing new knowledge without overriding previous one, as well as overcoming catastrophic forgetting or learning a really good data distribution. These are all active areas of research. There's no one mm. particular method that has solved it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so in my work, uh, the, the way we're looking at it is saying that we cannot collect all of the data and just give you a model that has achieved that because tomorrow something else will change and the model will also have to change because the data is now different. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so the work, therefore, is shifted towards is how do we create a method that allows the model to continuously learn from new experiences without us having to go back and forth about labeling data? Yeah. And yeah. that is yeah. something that is currently being battle tested as we speak, right? Uh, it's the case of can we give the model enough experience to, to learn from um, so that it achieves that inflection point when it has reached that level of accuracy, in which case we can say the model can now decide whether it, ha it wants to learn from this new piece of information or not. Yeah. That's the level we want to achieve because then yeah. it's very organic for the machine learning method for it, uh, itself to say, well, this isn't going to help me anymore. This particular part of image is because I've never experienced it before. So maybe I should learn something from it and then I continue to update myself. Very helpful. appreciate you walking through that with me. Let's talk about the data aspect of this. I was thinking about the business structures that will change because of this. Because if, if it is truly valuable to you, um, like now look, like there's not a huge amount of small companies I would imagine in the oil business, but there are a lot of small companies with infrastructure that can fail, that, that cares about inspections. What do they do in this situation? Like, is there some collective that gets formed or, or a company that gets started to aggregate data from smaller players and sort of build to the same strength that you have um, to at least remain somewhat competitive and get the same, or at least to some degree, the same level of leverage. Is that where you think this is going? 
I think what will likely happen is, let's say you do create a perfect inspection model at some point, Yeah. Uh, then that will just become a service you would provide as a product. If a small company is unable to accrue that scale of data, either you're going to be basically reliant on some of these models becoming available, um, yeah. either open source or someone providing them behind a paywall, or yeah. you out-innovate. Right. You out-innovate in a learning yeah. strategy that allows you to use as little data as possible while still achieving the required threshold results you need. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Do you think it's too purist of a view to say there's sort of a, I'm envisioning a model API where it's like you send a image that you've taken in a factory and it returns crack or no crack, a little bit like hot dog, not hot dog? Or, or is this like going to be one of the situations where it's, it's much more complex than that, like companies are going to need to customize things in-house they're going to have their own teams. Like, yeah, to some degree, you can buy the tools off the shelf, but you're not just going to get a model as a service. Like, that's just way too too simplistic, generic way of thinking about it. How, how do you think it's going to ultimately go? It's not inconceivable to say both, uh, because as as I mentioned, right, as learning strategies improve, we're going to reduce the amount of data burden we need for every model update or every model output sample that it produces. Yeah. In which case it is actually not inconceivable to say at one point you will have a model as a service because it doesn't need new learning uh, that much computation. <laughs> if you take it all the way out further, like it's trained on enough data and enough cases that, yeah. Right, uh, or it has enough experience to generalize the way humans do um, yeah. for that specific task. Uh, but at the same time, right. in the short term, it's also very relevant, which is why companies like uh, Hugging Face or others uh, equivalent exists, right? That allow you to have the infrastructure to quickly iterate on creating your own new models and serve them, right? Um, so there, there will be AI as infrastructure companies that, that allow you to quickly scale and build AI uh, algorithms um, for your use case. But then they all will also fall into the same issue at some point, which is how do we create a learning strategy? Because the biggest bottleneck is still data. That's the oil yeah. uh, for, for, for creating these models. If, if you don't have yeah. the data to serve it, that is still going to be a limitation. One of the things we talked about before off the recording is your interest in multimodal models, specifically using text to indicate intent. And I imagine that's important as we think yeah. about this like model as a service, because if you just send an image of something, it's like, well, what am I supposed to do with that? Like a human would say the same thing. So, so can you talk a bit about how you think that might play a role here? Yeah, like I feel like NLP now or with large language models, you've essentially changed the game for computer vision to some degree. And it's, it's, it's really an exciting game now because before when it came to computer vision, you'd have to have strict rules and strict uh, discrepancies between what yeah, you want right. to model predict and do like it has to be point it has to be a b c d right if there's anything in between the model will just get confused and won't do anything but for the first time uh, with nlp we we don't need those strict categories anymore because we can now probe the model's uh latent understanding and what that means is the actual internal weights of the model and what it has learned across the entirety of distribution of data we can for the first yeah. time probe and ask like okay what can you extract based on this much experience for this particular problem? And then we can yeah. fixate on, okay, this is the area that, this is the thread we need to keep pulling, right? Because this is where the limitation is. For the first time, you don't need those categories anymore to that extent. And yeah. that's, that's, 
Well, that's amazing space to be in. For <laughs> that's interesting. I'm, I'm visualizing like the model being effectively pulled down into a specific use case with the, the prompt that is being sent along with the computer vision image. Um, that, that, that sort of feels like the right form factor or like intuitive way of doing it uh, from a completely non-technical perspective. Yeah, I mean, even if you look at, for example, these diffusion models, right, that are text to image, um, like Midjourney or DALI, etc. They may not have actually seen hundreds and thousands of images of cracks. But if you ask it to create an image with a crack, it's able to do that. Because it understands yeah, yeah. how to marry your, your, your learnings from natural language and what that word actually means to what it may be represented in an image from piecing other parts of information together. Do you see my point? Like there's no strict yeah. rule anymore that I yeah, need yeah, to yeah. have tracks for images on cracks in order for it to understand cracks. But that yeah, information yeah, 100%. can be reused and funneled for downstream applications, right? Like like in this case, yeah, yeah. crack understanding or detection. Totally, I mean, look, it, it seems like that would work in a generic sense. Is there gonna be work required for companies to annotate images to sort of fill those gaps? So all the work essentially is going towards understanding the context without having that yeah. data burden, right? So even with like the latest segment yeah. anything model from Meta, the beauty is it can segment, segment literally anything, right? Uh, but it doesn't have to have seen the segmentation marks or label for it beforehand. Yeah but it's able to yeah, segment. Right. Like if I was to take a picture of my table, it's able to segment keyboard and a mouse. I'm not sure whether it has seen keyboard and a mouse in its data set, but it has understood what that context means in terms of how these objects are different, right? Yeah. So yeah. What, right. what that means now is now, if I want it to learn new things or new context, I no longer need to give it million samples that I would have done in the past. I just need to give it a few right. handful hundred, and that still made my model significantly efficient narrowed down with this generalized understanding and has uh, made my product delivery faster. What are you as an organization wanting to build versus buy? That's a very good question. The trick is to understand what is an active problem we want to solve. Is it a painkiller or a vitamin, right? Having our own GPUs is essentially a vitamin. It's not a painkiller because I could just buy GPUs and not have to worry about it and focus my solution on trying to solve a problem that matters to Shell directly, right? Yeah. Um, it's about balancing that. If, if GPUs are essentially um, become like a hardware a commodity or necessity for this, it's like having a computer now. Like I'm not going to create my own version of Microsoft Windows. It's available. Why would I bother? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's sort of like that. Um, right now, yeah. uh, it, 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 developing a model is essentially uh, your own personal uh, asset that you have to create because there's no one model fits all. But if we get to a point where there is one model fits all, that company wins, right? That, that's yeah, at that point yeah. won the AI race. If you have created one model that fits all. Yes, 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 yeah. Okay, makes um, sense. The one thing I wanted to make sure we touch on, it's, it's a lot of exciting things and, and man, I can talk about this for hours with you, I feel like, but on the negative side, what are those core limitations in a business like Shell or any of these big industrial companies that actually prevent this stuff from being deployed. I mean, I know that the machines can be old. Maybe it's hard to get the data in some cases. There's just bureaucratic process issues. Maybe it's regulation, but 
what are the roadblocks you see in actually making this work, even if the technology works well? I mean, all of the above. <laughs> all, all of the above. Damn it. Okay. Uh, um, but uh, I mean, uh, the biggest issue typically ends up being is um, graduating from POC to production because you can have a model that works really well with POC, even in the data set that you have accrued to test and yeah. develop in. But then packaging it in a way that's usable and deployed uh, it within the constraints of what the user wants is, is, is another uh, hurdle on its own, which has dedicated engineering teams as well. And that just goes through iterative process of product dev as well. Um, and one of the issues is it's not necessary that you can have cloud everywhere to deploy these models. Uh, some of them, uh, I mean, some of these refineries don't even have internet allowed there, right? So there's no model updates, uh, th there's no cloud. So you somehow have to engineer them to be super efficient so that they could just be deployed on spot on site. Why exactly is that? Like, why, why can't you just get, like, put the model in the cloud and send the images up and send back the output down? I mean, uh, some of these factories are deep under the ground as well, right? Like some of these pipelines go really deep, in which case they don't transmit data to the cloud itself. They transmit data locally, which is then transferred into the main control panel computer. So ideally, your model has to run there. Oh, interesting. Uh, I didn't even think, that, think of that as a problem. Uh, yeah, and some of these, like, yeah. if, you, if you go to some of these lubricant and chemical refineries, uh, you know, they're still running on old school machinery. And it's like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? They were, they, they've gone through decades of beautiful engineering to master such great hardware design that just doesn't fail that often. Um, and, you, they, and some of these locations are also where the connectivity is so bad. Like, I don't know about you, but even in London, I sometimes get terrible internet. And I'm in central London. I don't even want to think yeah. about places like in Gulf of Mexico or Indonesia where these factories are located, which doesn't have good coverage. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And you can't have downtime in your predictions because if you have like a pause and your, your users rely on it, that's a huge, huge liability. So these things need to run live on spot there and then. So you want to reduce as late as much latency as possible. So there's there's a lot of engineering challenges in deploying AI models in these conditions. Interesting. How well solved is that beyond just the size of the model? Does a company like Shell already have a pretty good strategy for saying, look, like we have a pod of servers, we can put it in a safe box and plug it in and, and in that location and it sort of works? Or is that still an ongoing problem to figure out how to do this? reliably different users and different products have different requirements and different model sizes as well so it's an ongoing thing we continuously experiment with so there's areas of edge computing that come into play there's also cloud that comes into play in areas where you can have cloud great in areas where you can't you can't you you do need to engineer a solution that goes literally on the edge there and there yeah so it's an active area of engineering and, and we have teams for it last question for you when you envision these models being deployed in production, these very hard to reach places, particularly in this world of, of self-supervision and learning with incremental data, with human feedback, are you envisioning that happening, quote unquote, at the edge where, you know, it's deployed in some environment pipeline and like some operators there being like, okay, yes, you're pretty much correct, but like not this one, not this one, not this one. And it sort of learns on the spot. Or are you imagining it's, you're just deploying the weights and it's going from there? 
This is where self-supervised learning shines, right? Because you don't need active labels to learn from. You would just update your representations based on what comes through. Yeah, I would say at some point you will have to learn on spot. Yeah. Well, Sam, look, I, I feel like I could talk to you about this for hours, but, but thank you so much for doing this. This has been a really interesting conversation. No problem at all. Thank you for having me.